Tonight I wanted to talk to you about uh, two arenas. One was uh, dealing with the difficult stuff when it arises, but also um, to share with you things that you might want to keep in mind if your practice is going relatively smoothly. And I, actually, I want to start off with uh, an important point around this, which in some ways can be bad news. And that's a reminder that, uh, I'm sorry, but you don't get to choose. You don't get to choose if it's going to be difficult or smooth. Have you ever noticed that about your life? But the funny thing is, the, 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 the most funny thing about it is, have you noticed that you have a mind that thinks that it really can choose? <laughs> That it was as a result of your choice that your, your retreat's turning out good or bad. So it's important to keep in mind, yeah, sorry, you don't get to choose. It's like the weather. Sometimes uh, it's nice and warm and sunny, and sometimes it's stormy. That's just the way life is. It's filled with these vicissitudes, the vicissitudes of life. So I want to uh, talk about how to navigate both the smooth and the difficult. And I want to first share with you just some things to keep in mind if your practice is going relatively smoothly. So please keep in mind, and Eric's been mentioning this as well, is that that if you haven't noticed already, meditation is a messy affair. So that's just the way it is. But at times you might notice that sometimes it's a little more uh, smoother than other times. So if there's a, a relative smoothness to it, these are some things you might want to keep in mind. And I want to begin by uh, first sharing with you a story. So there was one point, this comes from a, a discourse, uh, one of the discourses of, of, the, of the Buddha in the early Buddhist canon, in the, actually the, the middle-length discourses, the Majjhima Nikaya. <clears throat> and one day, all the monastics were just hanging out together. So they're hanging out, probably in a place similar to this, some place in the wild, in the forests. It was beautiful, away from, you know, Maine, the, the, the city. And hanging out in community, community like this, of like-minded people. But it was a little bit different, because for them they weren't in noble silence, they were chatting, they were talking to each other. And the topic that day was, uh, one of the monastics have brought up the, this topic of the wonderful and marvelous qualities of the Buddha or the, another word that they use for the Buddha is the Tathagata. And so one person said, one of the wonderful and marvelous qualities of the Buddha is this ability to know about all of the Buddhas of the past and know where they came from, their family, their lineage, their clan, and know all about their lives. And so this, this supernatural power to know about all the Buddhas of the past and the Buddha came into the picture and then asked Ananda, Ananda, what are some other wonderful and marvelous qualities of the Buddha? And Ananda follows in the same vein. He, he begins to share all of these supernatural qualities that are known about the Buddha. For example, that before he was Siddhartha in, this, in, in his last lifetime, that he was in Tushita heaven, Tushita heaven, and then descended down into uh, the womb of his mother. And when he entered the womb, it said that this great immeasurable light shone forth all over the world. 
and that this was yet another wonderful and marvelous quality of the Buddha. And not only that, this wonderful and marvelous quality that when he was in the womb of his mother, there's these deities surrounding his mother, protecting him. And not only that, that when he was born, jets of water coming from the sky rained down upon him to bathe him. <laughs> yeah, so Ananda's talking about all these wonderful and marvelous qualities. And then the Buddha says something very interesting. He says, and Ananda, please don't forget this one wonderful and marvelous quality of the Buddha. This is what, what the Buddha says at the end of this. He says, that being so, Ananda, remember this too as a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Buddha. Here, Ananda, for the Buddha, feelings as are known as they arise, as they are present, and as they disappear. Perceptions are known as they arise, as they are present, and as they disappear. Thoughts are known as they arise, and as they are present, and as they disappear. This, too, is a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Buddha. Striking, don't you think? Probably quite a lesson for the monastics in Ananda. This is actually the truly wonderful and marvelous quality of an awakened one to see the arising and passing away of experience. It, it, it sounds so ordinary and mundane, don't you think? Why, why is the Buddha emphasizing this? Why is he being so persistent that this is the true, wonderful, and marvelous quality? Because that simple awareness that Eric and I have been talking about again and again, noticing how experience arises and passes away, just that leads to awakening. Something that simple. Noticing again and again, even the sound of my voice, how it, how it comes and it goes. How a thought can arise in your mind and pass away. How a sensation can arise and pass away. Or an emotion can arise and pass away. That's a truly wonderful and marvelous quality that you can engage in. That is actually a quality of a Buddha, of one who is awake. <clears throat> And, and this is the, the, the emergence of beginning to sink into this, this important characteristic that we want to see about experience, this quality of impermanence. Not thinking about it. All of us understand impermanence. It's actually getting it on that visceral level that it can transform us. So some things that can be helpful for that, that, that you might want to... Um, add into your practice or at least be sensitive to. And that's this, uh, having this sensitivity or this curiosity about impermanence. And there's some certain things that you can uh, actually open up to that can really allow this to unfold. And it, one of the things that can be helpful that I remind myself is, can I be with what I say is the beginning, middle, and end of an experience? Let me give some examples of this. You might notice what your mind does. For example, let's say there's a, a, a robin flying by. 
And a lot of times what the mind will do is it will avert its attention to the bird. Sometimes we'll say, oh, there's a bird or there's the robin. It will see it and then it will come to some other experience. It's different to, to be like, oh, there's the bird and then to be with the direct experience from the beginning of the scene of it all the way until it, end, uh, it disappears from your field of vision. Then there's this continuity of seeing that visual experience arise and be present and pass away. That's exactly what the Buddha was talking about. This is the wonderful and marvelous quality to really be with the continuity of the experience and how it changes, how it arises and passes away. And you might notice your, your, your mind doing this, even around the breath. It's with the in-breath, and it's like, oh, there's the in-breath. And then it's over. It it's, it's, it's wants to go on to something else. Can you give the invitation? It's like giving the invitation to the awareness to be with the beginning, middle, and end of the in-breath, or the out-breath, or that small pause between the in-breath and out-breath. Just this simple intention, this open, this re- receptive quality of of how of how experience unfolds. Sticking with experience, or just moving the foot from the lifting of the foot to the moving of it to the placing of it. Beginning, middle, and end. So you're with the continuity of, of experience and how it arises and passes away. Because when you do that, then there's what can arise is this we can start to get more and more of a visceral feeling of of impermanence. And impermanence can happen on, on so many different levels. Just There's just, for example, the arising and passing away, of uh, the, 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 the abdomen rising and falling. And there's a change in that. But sometimes the, the mind can get so sensitive that just in the rising of the abdomen, sometimes people get a sense of, of it almost happening in these discrete moments, of it almost like beginning and ending again and again and again, as if the experience is arising and passing away very, very quickly, just with the in-breath. So there's a super sensitivity to, to the experience of, of, of arising and passing away. So don't assume that you know what, what it means for an experience to arise and pass away and what that's like. It's this receptivity, this curiosity of impermanence. And it can, be, it can show itself in so many different ways of how, of how things can come and go, just with the in-breath and out-breath. For example, when I uh, used to do these longer retreats in Asia, They'd always asked. Um, sometimes we'd have interviews six days a week, and the first thing they'd they'd want to know, and some of you have done uh, um, retreats like this, is what are you experiencing on the uh, on the rise and fall of your abdomen? And when when my mind was concentrated and and really sensitive, especially to impermanence, I could spend an entire three months just giving a report on the rise and fall of the abdomen and the change of the feeling of impermanence just within that experience. There's, there's that kind of depth or richness that we can begin to uh, be sensitive to. What's important about this is you're not looking for it. It's more a receptivity to it, a receptivity to impermanence, however it, it shows itself. There's a wonderful poem that I, I feel uh, exemplifies what I'm speaking about, which is sticking with or this continuity with, uh, uh, with our experience. There's a poem by Ted Kuzer. Ted Kuzer was, was the U.S. Poet Laureate. It must have been a number of years ago now. He begins, he says, This evening... I sat by an open window and read till the light was gone 
and the book was no more than a part of the darkness. I could easily have switched on a lamp, but I wanted to ride this day down into night, to sit alone and smooth the unreadable page with the pale gray ghost of my hand. Do you hear what he's doing in this? There is, he's sitting by an open window and he's reading till the light was gone and, and the book was no more than a part of the darkness. And the natural thing would have been to actually turn on the light so that he could keep on reading. But then he decides differently. And in, in, in that beautiful phrase, I want to ride this day down into night. I want to be with the flow of this experience. And then to sit alone and smooth the unreadable page with the pale gray ghost of my hand. The thing I appreciate about this poem is it shows that we have a tendency to turn on the light too soon because we think that's what we, quote-unquote, should be doing. But what's it like to really stick with the experience as it unfolds? And and, and once again, I I, want to emphasize... I'm not asking you to find anything. It's simply to be receptive to how experience changes and to have this intention to be with it. So it's it's not the sense of, oh, I need to find these cool experiences of impermanence. What's involved in that? Attachment, grasping. <laughs> we want to go to this receptive quality of simply being aware and accepting as it is. I want to uh, come back to something that I mentioned in the in the practice discussion, uh, uh, the practice instructions this morning, and then it also came up in the in the question and answer to speak about another thing. If things are going relatively smoothly, that you might want to become sensitive to, and that's uh, beginning to make this discernment of when our experience is infused with this quality of grasping or resistance, or pushing away, or this checking out, and when there's when that's absent from experience. And what I was mentioning during the Q&A was that uh, one thing that we can, can become sensitive to is this, I use this word, this Pali word, Vedana, which is referring to these three flavors of experience, it being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And can we notice when an experience is just simply unpleasant, and when an experience is unpleasant, and there's a quality of aversion to it? and to notice the difference with that. Or when there's an experience of pleasure, just simply pleasure or pleasant, and there's, when it's just that, and the difference of when there's grasping uh, uh, connected to it. So I want to give some examples of this and also uh, point out actually some equations. I think Eric used them as well to to help uh, further clarify this. I'm pretty certain that the, this primary equation came from Shinzen Young, which was this, this equation of what suffering equals, suffering yeah. equals pain times resistance. Um, and and th- 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 this is so helpful ar- around what I'm speaking about. 
So I'm hoping we can just do a little math together so we can understand this. And I know maybe you're like me. I'm really horrible at math. It's getting worse. I have a wife that's very good at it, so I now lean on her, and my mathematical skills are getting worse. So maybe we can work our way through this. So you're sitting here, and and you're sitting here, and there's some kind of pain. There's a physical pain, or there's an emotional pain. And if we're mathematical about it, let's give it ten units. So there's a pain of ten units. And not only is there a pain there, but there's also resistance. There's some quality of the mind that's saying, I don't like this. Not only do I not like it, I don't want it to be here. And so there's a resistance of 20. So 20 times 10 equals 200. (laughs) Okay. Wow. Okay, well... uh... So it might be a little more difficult than that. Than that. <laughs> so you could say there's 200 units of, of suffering there. So, but if we cut down the resistance just in half to 10 units, then we have 10, 10 units of pain and 10, 10 units of, 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 re, of resistance. And then the suffering's only 100 units. It's been cut in half, even though the pain has not changed. So this is really important to see. And, and even the promise of, of Buddhism is, is that there can be, if there is no resistance, if there is zero resistance and there is a, a, a pain of 10 units, there's going to be zero suffering. Or if there is a pain of 100 units or 1,000 units and there is no resistance, there is no suffering. This is really important to notice this in this equation because sometimes we equate no suffering with no pain. And this equation is saying, no suffering, they're two different realms. And can you start to get a feeling sense between when you're suffering and there's simply pain there or simply an unpleasant experience? It really is possible to have a a tremendous amount of pain within our experience or to be tremendously unpleasant and not be suffering one bit. But you need to come in... Come through, clarify through your practice the difference, the feeling difference between that which is unpleasant and that which is stressful or suffering. Does this make sense? What's the difference in the feeling? The only way to really understand it is through practicing, is noticing when there's a mine of resistance and when that drops away. And the way you come to understand that is doing the simple practice of awareness and acceptance. Oh, here's pain, and oh, here's resistance. Oh, there's the awareness there. Can I accept it as it is? And once there's acceptance, the resistance begins to go down. There might be still pain. Oh, interesting, and there's less suffering. This is what can be discovered on this path. But it's not only around um, uh, unpleasant experiences, the, this flavor of, of that which is unpleasant. It's also around pleasant experiences, which is can be trickier to see. You can say that suffering equals... <coughs> A pleasant experience times grasping, and it's the same thing. You can have a tremendously pleasant experience with no suffering whatsoever, no stress whatsoever, as long as there's no grasping. Basically the same equation. It's a little bit trickier because we can get lost in the pleasantness and not see the grasping as much. But, but I really want to point out that, that our relationship to pleasure also creates suffering. The example I often give about this, 
Most people have heard this, but it's a good story, so it's well worth hearing again. Uh, when I was in, in Burma once doing a, a long retreat, um, I was grateful for the food. I'll say that. But it was um, it was it was difficult at times. It was kind of overcooked vegetables with a lot of white rice, and sometimes they would, I think, uh, because we were Westerners, uh, offer mutton. Um, but one day, through the generosity of the donors, the, the the Burmese people are incredibly generous when it comes to practitioners and monastics. Somebody had donated enough money to um, make an offering of chocolate ice cream to all of the yogis. It's awesome. So you have this little metal little bowl with a little scoop of chocolate ice cream. And um, I was so psyched. I was really psyched about it. And so I you know, tried to act like the mindful yogi and you know, go go slowly through the meal line and try to sit down and, and mindfully eat slowly. And, and I decided that I would um, eat the chocolate ice cream first for a number of reasons. One, it was hot and it was melting. And it was the, the wise, mindful thing to do. And um, I wanted it so much that um, I finished it before I really even tasted it. It was really a tragedy. (laughs) And it was all around my mind's relationship to pleasure, to that which is pleasant. There was so much wanting, I couldn't even be there for it. You you might want to become curious about that, even in a beautiful place like this, there can be so much of this sense of, oh, I'm so excited to be here, or oh, I really love this place so much, or, oh, I want to come back here again, that that can color and and, and uh, constrict our, our ability to be with, be with that which is pleasant. Can you notice when an experience is, is simply pleasant and when an experience is pleasant and then constricted by the grasping that's in the mind? How do they feel different? When is there suffering and when is there an absence of suffering? The most subtle aspect of experience that that, that can be quite tricky to notice is the same thing goes around neutral experience. So you could say suffering equals um, a neutral experience times um, checking out, basically. And so an experience can be incredibly neutral, and as long as there's not that quality of checking out, there's no suffering. And this can be a very subtle form of suffering. It's not as, as, as pointed around the pleasant or unpleasant. But the same thing can happen as, as you might notice with the, with the neutral flavors of your experience, there's this quality of the mind getting bored or wandering off from it. Can you simply notice that so there can be this quality of being with that which is neutral? So these are some things to to become curious about that that can allow the practice to deepen. I want to speak about one more complication that our minds bring to experience um, that creates suffering. And and I'd like to give uh, um, an example of this, another story. There's a story from uh, the Taoist uh, Chonsa. And he says, imagine... Imagine you're in your boat in a lake and you're, you're rowing along and um, 
somebody uh, is rowing in a boat, and they're rowing in the boat, and they accidentally run into you. Of course, what the reaction is going to be is you're going to be so upset with that person for running into you. There they are. And there's going to be this sense of anger. But if there is an empty boat that's merely floating along in the lake and bumps in to your boat, are you going to be as angry? And what he points out is when the boat is empty, one is not angry because one sees that it's just an empty boat that has run into you. So you might notice, and we do this actually with individuals and things like that, that we feel like there's somebody behind experience and it's that person that's trying to get us in some way. There's somebody in experience and that creates the suffering. It's not an empty boat. What would it be like to see even your internal experiences It's just an empty boat that's running into things? It can be such a relief when we take that quality of self out of the experience. Do you get this? How it's different with the empty boat? And again, it's, it's very simple how we begin to um, dig into this, this quality of, of that there's not a self there. And, and, and this is simply seeing experience for the way it is, the way the Buddha was talking about it, how it arises and passes away. For example, a thought. Oh, interesting. Thinking. It arises and passes away. There's not a self in that story that's arising in the mind. It's just a thought. It's just a story. When your mind can clearly see that, there can be a quality of relief from that. Oh, the story of self-judgment? Wow, what's the big deal? It's just judging. It's just a thought that's arising and passing away. It's only when there's some quality of identification with it that that's where the suffering is. Have you noticed that? That's why self-judgment can be so painful. We take it so personally. <laughs> really, I mean, it really is. It's just a thought. That's really all it is. It's, it's, it's just this thought that, that, that bubbles up and passes away. But then there's this complication. We put somebody in the boat. Okay, so on to um, when things are difficult. And I'd like to begin with a poem. It's, by, it's, it's entitled uh, The Healing Time by Pesha Gertler. I think it really speaks to this, this path and this practice and also the difficulties that, that can arise and also the way through it. So she begins, she says, Finally... Finally, on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life. I just want to stop there. It's one of, I, I, I just love this first line of this poem. Have you noticed this about your life? You, you come to a meditation retreat, you come to a spiritual practice, and finally you begin to say yes to your life. 
And then all you notice, all you notice are all those places where you said no. Experience this? Have you ever experienced this? It's called meditation practice. (laughs) So finally, on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life. All the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones, those coded messages that send me down the wrong street again and again. Where I find them, the old wounds, the old misdirections, and I lift them, and I lift them one by one close to my heart, and I say, holy, holy. So bumping into all those places where you say no to your life, and then seeing, lifting them, and seeing that they're holy. I want to talk about this process of of that lifting and and that realization around these difficulties that arise in our practice. I first want to point out, though, that this is the practice, the difficulties that arise. This is just part and parcel of this practice. So many times there can be this feeling that we come to meditation practice and then things get difficult, and then all of a sudden we take it personally. And then we get lost in the story that, oh, here's yet another experience that means that there's something wrong with me, that I'm not doing it right or I can't do it. And it's just the nature of this path. I want to share with you a short verse um, uh, from a collection of verses called the uh, uh, Terigata. It's it's a number of verses from uh, the nuns of, you could say, early Buddhism. And this is from a nun by the name of Mitakali. Because I I think it it exemplifies this quality of finally on my way to yes and I bump into all the places where I say no to my life. And it's just a a couple lines. It's very short. This is what she says. This this is a, a woman who decided to become a nun. She says, going forth through conviction from home into homelessness. So from her home into the life of a monastic homelessness. I wandered this place and that greedy for gain and offerings. Missing out on the foremost goal, I pursued a lowly one. Under the sway of defilements, I surrendered the goal of the contemplative life. Then, sitting in my dwelling, I suddenly came to my senses. I'm following a miserable path. I'm under the sway of craving. After watching, as it actually was, the rising and falling of phenomena, I stood up with mind released the awakened one's bidding done. Do you, do you hear this? Her path, she, she becomes a monastic, but then she just fe- notices that her life is just it's the same old life of, of greed and wanting gain. And then there's the turn. There's the turn and then seeing the, the, the nature of reality, how it arises and passes away. An awakening arises for her. So this is awakening for somebody that's just like us, that struggles on the path and then moves beyond that eventually. So how do we approach difficulty? 
I want to offer um, the first step, and I feel the the first step is uh, something I come back to. It's this image uh, that I received from this writer Simone Weil. I don't know if anyone's read any Simone Weil. She's this um, say Christian mystic, really a, a fascinating woman. Uh, she wrote much about her relationship to God and what it is to have a relationship to God. And she spoke about her struggle often of feeling so separate from the divine. And, uh, and, and she gave this paradoxical view of what it is to become close to the divine. She, she, it was this phrase of that the separation is the link. That my feeling separate from the divine, the feeling of separateness is that which connects which is a strange thing because we feel like that which separates me separates me. And she's saying, actually, that's not the case. That which separates you is the connection to the divine. And she gives this image, this image of imagining these two prisoners in these cells and they're separated by a wall. And that's their separation is the wall. Yet when they begin to tap on the wall, the wall becomes their link. So that which is separating the prisoners is actually beca- actually becomes the link once they relate to it in a different way. That which separates you in in your practice is the link to the deepening of your practice. One example of this: self-judgment. Judgment arises. Have you noticed when there's a lot of self-judgment how separating that can feel? <laughs> There's, there's this feeling of not being present. There's a feeling of disconnection to oneself. There's a feeling of not loving oneself. Alienation. Anything but awareness and acceptance. You, yet you might notice what happens when you bring awareness and acceptance to self-judgment. Right there, there might be a, a coming together with oneself. A connection. An acceptance of, oh, this is arising. Oh, no wonder it's arising. There's some part of my experience that wants me to, to, be, be, to be better. No wonder. It's looking out for the best of me. might not be so skillful, and I'm not going to believe its stories. But I can understand it now. And with that understanding, there's a quality of connection and compassion and kindness and awareness. And all of these qualities of kindness and connection and compassion and awareness arise through being with, being with that quality of self-judgment. That which separates now becomes the link to these qualities that Eric and I have been speaking about. Does this make sense? Through this quality of being with, things get transformed. Can you trust that process, that that which is separating feels like it's separating from your practice? Can you bring... Bring this practice to it. Can you be with that? Can you bring awareness and acceptance to it and see what happens next? It's a really incredible process, but it takes faith. This faith that that's what's needed is to be with whatever arises. And it takes courage. The courage to begin to at least be the edge with the edges of, of the difficulties. Again, another poem. This is from uh, David White uh, called The Well of Grief, which, which I, I feel fits so well with the, with this image that uh, Simon Weil gives us as well. He says, Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief 
turning down to its black water, to the place that we cannot breathe. We'll never know the source from which we drink, the secret water, cold and clear, nor find in the darkness the small gold coins thrown by those who wished for something else. I just want to read this again. This is important. It's also important to notice that we have a mind that doesn't want to slip beneath the surface in the well of grief. We don't want to go down there. There's that impulse. But what's it like to go underneath this? And this is his description. So again, those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning down to its black water, to the place that we cannot breathe, will never know. They'll never know the source from which we drink, the secret water cold and clear, nor find in the darkness the small gold coins thrown by those who wished for something else. Are you getting this image? That when we slip beneath the still surface of our grief, when we're actually really willing to be with the difficult stuff. Do you hear what we find? These striking things, this the secret water, cold and clear. And the other thing that strikes me so so much is finding in the darkness those small gold coins thrown by those who wished for something else. What do we make of that? What I make of it is when I slip beneath the surface and I'm really with my difficulties, I get to find the gold coins that are thrown by people that are struggling with the same thing that I'm struggling with. I get the gold coins of, of, of understanding, of compassion, of kindness. But the only way I can get to those gold coins is by being with that in a very deep way. What a beautiful gift to receive, the gold coins of deep understanding, the gold coins of of compassion, of compassion for for the world that we live in and for ourselves. Again, it takes the willingness, a willingness to be with our difficulty in a skillful way, the ways that, that Eric and I have been talking about again and again, sometimes being with it and sometimes taking a break from being with it. So we're, we're following that rhythm that's needed so that our systems don't get overwhelmed. So I just want to mention a couple of things that can uh, be helpful within this pro- process of, of being with difficulty. Some, maybe some specific things. When I'm faced with difficulty, I ask myself the question, how can I be with this? And, and that's the, the, the most important thing, not how is this going to go away, but what's going to allow me the capacity to be with this? So sometimes if it's not that difficult, I can simply be with the difficulty, like for example, an emotional pain that I'm feeling in my gut or in my heart. I can be with it directly. I simply feel what it's like in the body and I'm simply being aware of it, the shape of it, 
the different qualities of it. Maybe it's pulsing, maybe it's stabbing. And I simply notice how it unfolds, how it increases or decreases, and I'm simply being with it. And in some, and sometimes that's all it takes. And especially what I'll do is, is I try to find the body component. So if the mind's wandering a lot about some story, about some hurt that's happening, I try to identify the emotion. Oh, hurt. Oh, anger. Oh, and then where do I sense it in my body? Oh, I sense it in my gut. Oh, okay, so let me see if I can be with this. So coming to the body and being with it in that sense. But have you noticed that sometimes it doesn't work so easily that way? So if it doesn't, I need to add different things. One is is sometimes I don't go directly to the pain. Sometimes I'll go to the edge of it if, if I know the bodily aspect of it. If I'm not so clear of the body component of it, sometimes, and I know this isn't classic Vipassana, but I've found it very helpful because what's important is, is getting an answer to how can I be with this, is sometimes I need to have a little bit more of a dialogue of what I'm experiencing so that there can be a quality of distance or disidentification with it. So for example, let's go back to, to judgment since that's been the theme. So there's, the mind is, is incredibly critical. It feels overwhelming. I might label judging yet it keeps on going, so I'm being swallowed by it. You ever have that experience, being swallowed by it? Good, okay. So then I might notice that I might have a, a little bit more of what I'd call a dialogue with it. So I, I would use a little bit more words, because sometimes when I use more phrases, it allows what I'd call this metaphorical distance, so I'm not as identified with it or, or wrapped up in it. So I might say something like, I'm, something, I'm sensing some aspect of my experience or I'm sensing something that is so angry, it's so angry at me, or that really wants to judge me. Because what I'm doing there is I'm not identifying with it. It's some aspect of my experience. There it is. And I, I, I use the phrase, and I'm going to let it know I hear it. So there's the awareness aspect of disidentification. I'm sensing some aspect of my experience and it's angry or it's sad. And then there's the acceptance aspect. And I'm going to let it know that I hear it. It, it, it. That's all I need to do. I not believe it, hear it, and understand it. And just using that phrase again and again can be so helpful because there's this quality of disidentification and acceptance. And sometimes I might even use a phrase, and you can even make up these phrases, anything that allows you to get some distance the disidentification and the acceptance. And I might even, a lot of times I'll use the, the phrase of, no wonder it's angry at me. Or no, of course it's angry at me. It wants me to be somebody else, and I'm not. Uh, of course. That makes so much sense. No wonder it would be angry because it's wanting something it doesn't get. And I hear that. Ah. Do you hear the acceptance and understanding in that? And there's just a little bit of dialogue in order to create that space. So sometimes I need to go to that when it's really too much to simply label anger or judging. So I invite you to play around with that as a way of cultivating some distance. Sometimes the mind is racing a lot. Sometimes it's just opening the eyes and seeing if you can cut the momentum of it so that there can be this quality of entering back into the present moment and then coming back to the bodily feeling experience. 
And also, I think what Eric and I have been emphasizing again and again, there's a time to be with, and then sometimes if it feels like it's too much, then there's a time to go hiking or walking out into this beautiful this beautiful environment, especially getting that spacious quality can really help with difficulty. And one last thing that I want to end with, which I found so helpful. Again, this is just a story. I, I, I use... For myself, I often use contradictory stories. The, the, the biggest relief in my practice is that it's okay for me to believe in contradictory stories. So one contradictory story that I take up a lot of times is that this practice really does help my life tremendously, which is really true. It's, it's been incredibly transformative. Yet at times, with difficulty, sometimes I'll tell myself, actually... That's not the reason I'm doing my, my practice. Actually, my practice isn't about my life improving at all. It's about more of this, this bodhisattva ideal that, that I practice for the liberation of, of, of this world of all beings. And if I have to go through a difficulty this lifetime, so be it. That can be a helpful story because then I'm not desperate to see an improvement in my life and I can stick with the practice a bit more. I can have this broader sense, and sometimes it, it, it eases and broadens, broadens my sense of, of, of why I'm sitting here. When it's connected with all beings, there's something so powerful about that. It's well worth sitting through whatever arises. And if it improves, great. If it doesn't, that's okay too, because I know in the long run, there'll be benefit. Benefit for all beings. And this is a deep faith in this. So it's having the big picture in mind. And not only the big picture in terms of all beings, but also for future generations. When you practice here today, that has an effect on generations to come. And it has an effect on all beings. We, we actually don't live in my world and the world out there. It's just one world. And in this one world, whatever you do affects it. One image I want to leave with you that's been quite powerful for me. That I got this from a friend, actually the friend that I always go... Um, Cutting wood with he's a, he's a uh, a guy that's really into um, the history of Native Americans in this um, in this country and he was telling me especially in this area especially in the Southwest what a lot of uh, tribes would do especially when they were nomadic is they would be in a certain area and you find these areas for example in Southern Colorado in um, Arizona where they'd be in a certain area and they would leave corn in that area they would leave corn there. But they were leaving corn not for themselves because their tribe wouldn't be back there for at least another generation or two. So they would travel around leaving corn in the places that they were always with this thought of the next generation. What a radical way to live. What would it be like to practice like that, that you practice also for the next generation? Where the real nourishment... eh, if it comes this time, great. If not, that's okay because it will be there for the next generation. So I invite you to have this broader ideal, this, this deeper faith in your practice that goes beyond just you. So may our navigation of difficulty together lead to the liberation of all beings. Thank you. So let's just sit for just very briefly, just half a minute. Thank <laughs> you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.